Ladies and gentlemen, kicking off the first stop on his world tour, our new president and prophet, Russell M. Nelson! You say you want some revelation, well here you go. It's gonna blow your freaking mind. Greetings, brothers and sisters. Welcome to the weekly Mormon News Roundup, where Rebecca and Dives are going to ruminate on the great and spacious beehive. It's episode 66, and this is July 2nd. We've got Rebecca Biblioteca. She's co-hosting. In Utah, some Latter-day Saint parents are suing their school district because their son had premarital sex. Yeah, that's right. And the Top Cats have canceled their Mexico tour due to some unfortunate circumstances. The Joseph Smith Papers Project has come to a close. And the Wall Street Journal has done an explosive piece detailing the LDS Church's real estate empire. If you want to get in touch with me, I'm at www.mormonnewsroundup.org, or you can send me an email to mormonnewsroundup, uh, colob at mormonnewsroundup.org. I'd like to invite Rebecca Bibliotech onto the program. How's it going, Rebecca? It's going great. How are you this morning? Hey, great. Better than I deserve. Hey, uh, <laughs> what's, uh, what, you know, We've had some collaboration back and forth, and I made some shorts for you for the um, Mormonish podcast. How are those shorts done? It is absolutely true. And I have to admit, I'm, I'm not super uh, techie. So shorts, I'm like, okay, I know those are shorter. I'm not sure what they do or what they are. But of course, you're very techie. So very nicely agreed to make some shorts for Mormonish. And we've been playing those. And like they've been getting tons of views. They're really awesome. We have several that have topped a thousand and definitely getting the word about Mormonish out there. So you're amazing. Thank you. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm delighted that that is a kind of a side hustle that I've got here uh, is making shorts. I've kind of, it's taken me a while to figure it all out. But uh, yeah, um, I think that uh, things uh, on the shorts uh, front are going very, very well. And uh, as far as Mormonish is concerned, uh, what's going on with uh, Mormonish as far as, uh, you know, who do you have on tap is coming up? Oh, yeah. We just released an episode uh, this morning, I guess technically last night. We are involved in a series with the Backyard Professor where we are taking each Gospel Topics essay one at a time and kind of diving in. We will have guests on and things like that. So what we released, um, this was actually on his show about a month ago, but what Mormonish released today is the question, are Mormons Christian? Which first we realized we have to even define what is a Christian. So that took us down a whole rabbit hole, but it's a really interesting episode that we released this morning. Yeah, absolutely tremendous. And uh, how's your son also doing on his LDS mission in Arkansas? You know, he's doing absolutely great. They're having a great time out there. The weather is hot and muggy and 90 degrees, things he's not really used to because there's dry heat here in Utah. But he just called me and said that he needs new socks. So that means he's tracked in a lot. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing. <laughs> yeah, we covered a couple of weeks ago that the church is actually growing in Arkansas faster than yep. any other place in the entire United States. <laughs> So I don't know how much credit that your son is going to be able to take for that. But uh. <laughs> Well, you know, his mission is technically Arkansas right now. He's in Missouri, but he did tell me last Sunday he had like seven investigators at church. So, but no, huh. I've heard that about Arkansas too. And huh. I think it has the temples there. People are moving there. Yeah. I have several relatives that live there already. It's a new Mormon Mecca hotspot, I think. Yeah, uh, Northwest Arkansas is the single greatest uh, area for church growth in the entire United States with 4.5% growth. They just opened a brand new temple there in Bentonville that uh, Elder Bednar went on and dedicated beautiful building. And so I lived in uh, that area for a number of years in the Midwest. It's a great area. The Latter-day Saints there are really, really great people. 
And the people of Arkansas in general are just really great people. So I'm not surprised to see that there's a lot of growth happening. And I definitely wish your son the very best. That does bring us to our Mormon joke of the week, though. I believe you have that for us. I do have the joke of the week, and it's sort of a pioneer joke because we're entering that time of year, right? We're here in Utah. It's pioneer day. So um, I come from a long line of polygamist ancestors. Um, I'm talking about my grandma's grandma, my grandpa's grandpa. You know, I mean, it's very close. It's very close in my family, and it always has been. So my dad, <laughs> last summer, just out of the blue, told me this um well, it's sort of a joke. It's more like an amusing story, I guess. But so the story goes that uh, my dad, these are my dad's words, uh, when the polygamy raiders would show up in the town. And of course, I would say, you mean law enforcement, dad. He's like, no, the polygamy raiders. Right. I'd say, you mean the law of the <laughs> land. No, no, polygamy raiders. You mean the sheriff. Oh, no, polygamy raiders. You know, they just don't quite make the connection. That's fine. Whatever. So when the polygamy raiders would come to try to root out the polygamists, uh, my grandfather's grandfather would say to his second wife, he had two wives, he would say, take a book and go up to the cemetery and read until I send word for you to come back. And so she would go. So the polygamy readers, raiders, aka sheriff, come knocking on the door and they say, do you have two wives? And he says, well, I mean, I do. One's here cooking in the kitchen and one's up at the cemetery. And they would leave because, you know, He's alluding to the fact that she's dead. And so apparently that worked. Just see what I mean? Yeah, she's <laughs> up at the cemetery. So he technically did not lie, right? She was at the cemetery. However, he did mislead a little. But, you know, you rarely see that. Well, <laughs> so I thought that was funny. She's yeah, up at the cemetery. <laughs> that is funny. Speaking of misleading, we're going to get into that with the Washington, uh, what the Wall Street Journal article, which we're going to close on, yeah. which is a must read article. Speaking of yep. using language that is slightly misleading, uh, your, yep. your, your uh, grandparents are in very good company as far as that's concerned. Yep, I think it's been sort of an institutional way of thinking, I think. But that was his nice way of saying that. So she's up at the cemetery. Yeah, you know, and that does bring us to our first news article here. This is a lawsuit that's uh, in your neck of the woods here, uh, Rebecca, here. High school, Utah high school fails to prevent Latter-day Saint student from having premarital sex yes. with his girlfriend. And, um, you know, uh, this is a Doe versus the Alpine school, school District. And, you know, I used to work in the Alpine School District, by the way. And I know that's your home. I, yeah. I know that's where you live, too. I mean, the Alpine School District yeah. is a big, big school district. The son, premarital son here, um, he, he has sex with his premarital sex with his girlfriend. And what is the what? How do the parents respond to um, <laughs> their son's behavior here, uh, Rebecca, in your school district? Well, I wondered if this was one of my neighbors, perhaps. I don't know. But yeah, the school. this is the school district that all of my children graduated in. So I did find out um, that it is not the high school they actually went to, but it's just up the street. But it's sort of a situation where, um, you know, the parents, they have their beliefs. Of course, they're trying to instill their beliefs in their children. The son had been having sex with his girlfriend. So they had been working with him, you know, don't ever be alone. They were trying to very, very closely monitor him. And they felt that being at school, he was monitored all the time by the teachers and the classes and the activities so he wouldn't have the opportunity um, you know to break the law of chastity so the last week of school as most people realize is very loosey-goosey you know sure. the classes are letting out you're picking up your yearbook there's lots of, of downtime well in some of that downtime 
<laughs> this young man uh, took the opportunity to um, have some recreational activities happen in the parking lot with his girlfriend. And when the parents found out about that, they felt that they should have been notified that there would not be the normal supervision during the school day. Because had they known that, I don't know if they would have taken off work to attend school with the son to make sure that he was living his religion, or I'm not sure what they would have done, but they would have done something differently. So the lawsuit, um, which was which was taken by, they were represented by a law firm in Salt Lake. I looked it up because I thought, who would represent this? That's so unusual. They said that their religious rights were being trampled on because they were not able to you know, continue help their son live these tenets of their religion by the fact that the school, you know, did not um, let them know that this would be a possibility. So, of course, the lawsuit was, I would think, pretty quickly thrown out. I, I did read that they also made the point that, well, you didn't complain when your son attended a sex education segment of a health class, which also could be seen as against your religious values. You do not want him to learn about birth control or things like that. And so there were lots of reasons that it w was thrown out, but pretty, I have to say, ballsy of those parents. <laughs> maybe, not, maybe not the right term. Okay, that, maybe that's not the right that, term. I'm sorry, but, that, but what did you think? What did you think about it? I just, you know, I read oh, through it and just thought that's so unusual. Not so. the best term of art for this particular no, article. No. Okay. I uh, apologize but, to you. <laughs> that's okay. You know, that's why I tweeted this out on uh, our Twitter handle. We're at, at News Mormon here. And I tweeted this out and I said, should a Utah public high school or really any public high school in the United States, uh, for that matter, be um, required to enforce uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saint doctrines regarding uh, preventing its students from engaging in premarital sex. And as we, you know, most of the people who threw the back said, no, that's a, that's a private matter. And that's not something that a school district should be charged with either enforcing or uh, restricting or even encouraging. And all I can say also, my final thoughts on this article here is it's a good thing that Joseph Smith never went to this high school. You know what I mean? Could have been a there problem. would be some issues. Yeah, that could have been a big problem. So, but very <laughs> interesting. An interesting mental exercise, I think, to go. Okay, now wait. What are they trying to say? Are they, you know? And like the school district said, they 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 had no part in stopping them from you know transmitting their values to their son. They could do that all day long. And then their son basically, they basically said he had agency at school. Imagine that. Well, luckily <laughs> not free agency. That much we know. Yes. Definitely. No, we never say free. We never no. say moral agency. Now, right. free agency is another one. You know, when I was young, it was free agency, but yeah. that doesn't, can't use well, that word anymore. I really miss the times when I had free agency because I enjoyed using it. <laughs> you know, that's the thing. It was around, I, I must have been about six or seven when I lost my free agency yeah. because now, it, and it got replaced with moral agency. And I had moral no agency. say in the matter whatsoever. It's just, yeah. I had free agency and now I don't. Uh, you know, I wish I could now go back do. to when I did, but. Well, that would be the pre-existence, as we all learn. You've already made those choices, so you're you're on the path. Apparently so. Now, our next article here uh, is a Tabernacle Choir here is uh, made the news here. They were on a uh, Mexican tour here. Uh, the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square, that's the official name of it, canceled their live broadcast due to multiple cases of COVID. They went for a big international tour here, and the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, you know, they've been trying to do more of an international focus by doing things in Spanish, by singing more songs in Spanish, by doing an entire broadcast in Spanish, by bringing in many international singers. They And they're doing not as many domestic, uh, uh, local uh, tours, but instead trying to get around the world as part of President Nelson's uh, vision and his uh, redefining of the mission, which I believe happened last year. But uh, the unfortunate uh, fact of the matter here is that uh, 
a number of choir members. They came down after shortly after the choir arrived in Mexico City. A couple of choir members tested positive for COVID. Um, they were isolated. They were treated. But then other choir members also uh, came down with gastrointestinal issues. And it turned out that they ended up having to, uh, you know, reschedule um, one of the, the, the broadcasts. And unfortunately, just like basically everybody got sick here, uh, Rebecca. That's uh, rather unfortunate. Yeah, that is unfortunate. And I have two people that I know in the choir. And one person had talked to them. They were very excited to be going. They were absolutely thrilled. And for a while there on Facebook, they were posting pictures. And then suddenly the pictures stopped. <laughs> and I kind of wonder what happened. I'm like, well, send us some more of the pictures. And I didn't realize till after the fact that they were going through these things. Um, my other relative um, that is in the choir, they said that they personally did not get COVID. I guess most of them it was a COVID issue. Um, but they said that one of their friends in the choir was flat down in bed for a week there in Mexico like it was it was pretty bad it wasn't just oh we have some symptoms like they were completely debilitated some of the other members when you talk about the gastrointestinal situations um street food the choir had sampled the street food and food poisoning a lot of them got food poisoning that just kind of laid them out so it sounds like it was not um it was not as pleasant of a trip as they thought and then on the return they've had to cancel something i think on this side of it because people are still you know testing positive people are still sick so hopefully they can rally you know and and, and come back but but it sounded like it was well there's a word i would use but i won't so because it's too much of a pun but it sounds like it was it was it was difficult, a difficult situation. <laughs> you're, you're really the censor, the, sen the YouTube I'm, censor here. I'm self-censoring myself. But it's, it ended in show. It was a show. It was a total show. But I'm not going to oh, say okay. that. It was a oh. difficult situation. It, I prefer to call it a trial of faith. That's just that's oh, how I, yeah. Okay, much yeah. better spin on it. You know, just it reminds me, Rebecca, whatever happened to the legendary story of Joseph Smith on the bank in Quincy, Illinois, before it was renamed to Nauvoo in 1839. Do you remember there was the outbreak of cholera and dysentery yeah. and everything? And uh, I, I guess that was back in the days when the priesthood worked. Is or am I getting that wrong? Supposedly, everybody was healed or quite a number of people were healed. However, I have always said, if only God, one of the Ten Commandments would have been boil your water and wash your hands there would have been a lot less difficulty throughout history. So that would have I'm been just very... saying, or even if a prophet would have said that, you know, wouldn't that be amazing? That would have been very timely. We certainly wish the Tabernacle Choir the very best. And the thing about it, Rebecca, is, you know, they tried to continue the tour when everybody was sick with COVID, when everybody yeah. was throwing up and had diarrhea and all that. And so they, um, they tried to push on, they tried to, you know, uh, carry on. But the thing about it is, is that it didn't really work out. So, but while they were trying to press forward saints, um, they actually kind of modified a couple of the hymns here um, to reflect the fact that they weren't at 100%, they weren't feeling well, weren't at 100% capacity here. And so um, these are the hymns here that they, uh, I have the, the inside, insider knowledge here of the hymns that they tried to sing. And uh, I want to get your thoughts on this. This also goes with our Mormon News Roundup, a poll of the week. For those of you in the live chat, you can, uh, we'd appreciate it if you participate in this. But uh, I want to uh, get your thoughts on these uh, hymns that they tried to uh, sing while they were sick. So uh, number 10 is uh, uh, when upon life's billows, you toss your cookies. 
Yeah, there's that's, a sing- that's a very uh, appropriate song. <laughs> yeah, uh, sing along portion. When upon life's billows, you toss your cookies. Toss your cookies. Right, da, da, da. exactly. Yeah, I can see that. Mm-hmm. I can see yeah, that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Or high on a mountain oh, top, some tepees unfurled. unfurled. I love yeah. that. I mean, those lyrics yes. just really roll off the tongue. I, uh, yeah. In fact, I think were I to go to church and this song would be on the marquee, I would actually sing these lyrics. <laughs> Absolutely. And this is a rare picture here, Rebecca, of David O. McKay. Uh, you know, that's, this oh, is one of I've the, never, is that a, for a minute, I thought that was a stack of toilet paper. <laughs> yes, this, this is, this is a stack of toilet paper with David O. McKay. Oh, it very, is? Yeah, very authentic photo here of David O. McKay. Very rare There photo you go. There yeah. you go. Very or, rare. Or, uh, be okay. still my vows. <laughs> my vows. Dude, I don't even want to know what the next line is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, oh. it's going to be still my soul. Uh, you know, and oh. I asked the AI to help me with this photo, Rebecca. This is actually a picture of Helen Mark Kimball in the basement of the Liberty Jail. Very no, that's faith. very unusual. That's very Vi- unusual. Yeah, very faith-inspiring. Very faith-inspiring, wow. you know. We, or how about uh, uh, this next one? We'll sing all hail to Imodium AD. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me try Let me give it to you. We'll, we'll sing all hail to Imodium AD. That's right. Yeah. Wow, mm-hmm. this is... These are great. I'm telling you, you know what? Everybody wants the hymn book to be updated. We've yeah. been hearing for years that they're working on it. I think you've done it right here. Yeah, or there is a bathroom far away. Mm, that's right. There is a bathroom far away. Is it that? Yeah. yeah. Nice. Mm-hmm. Very, very good. Yeah, instead of there is I a I want the next hill. line. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or maybe yeah. I don't. <laughs> that's unfortunate. We want those bathrooms to be close by. Or how about there are ailments in my soul today? In my soul today. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's great. Perfect. Or how about uh, catch your many vectors, name them one by one. One by one. Do, do, do. Yep, very nice. Very nice. Oh, sweet oh. is the peace, the peace that Pepto brings. Oh, it's up above my range. Yeah, and I like your graphic there. That's uh, drinking some, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Oh, these are classic, classic. I oh. Can, where does this, what hymn is this from? Um, Master of the Tempest is right. raging. Instead, That's Master... actually my favorite hymn. When I was a kid, whenever they played that, it was the only one that had kind of a, you know, a bass beat, kind of a, you know, I love this one. So this is Very great. nice. Yes, the COVID mm-hmm. is raging. Or this is the most difficult one. Stop oh. and tell me, Red Man, where is the closest John? Uh, this oh, is an, that's old, an older one. Yes. Now, I actually looked up the actual, I can sing this for you. Oh, stop and tell me, red man, where is the closest John? That's actually how <laughs> that hymn sounds because I looked it up. So, uh, yes, uh, in the live chat there, we release all, all of our new episodes here Sunday nights at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can cast your votes in the live chat. And, Rebecca, will you be the first one to cast the vote? Which of these yeah, is the best I- uh, I'm sorry. I think the choir knocked it out of the park with Be Still My Bowels. In fact, I can't get that lyric out of my head. Like, I've been humming that for a while. I, I personally prefer Sweet is the Peace that Pepto brings. You know? They're all really good. I'm going to be excited to see what people vote for because these are brilliant. Absolutely. And if you could raise with five stars, if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, we'd appreciate that. But obviously, that is the joke poll of the week. That does bring us to our next article here, Rebecca, uh, which is, uh, and this is in your neck of the woods, too. There is a new musical here that's being released in Utah County called called The Principal Wife. It's an inspiring new musical about how love endures. And it's based off of polygamy. What's going on here? 
Yeah, this is really interesting. Um, this is going to be performed at the Covey Theater, which is an extremely conservative theater. They have content. It's really good. They have really good plays there. I'd recommend anybody going. But it's very conservative. Like, you would never see Jesus Christ Superstar there, I don't think. <laughs> you probably wouldn't see hair or anything like that. However, you will see a play about polygamy. So I downloaded some notes on this because I just wanted to see what it was. Um, basically, it says this is an emotional, often humorous, often humorous look at plural marriage because plural marriage was often humorous, I guess, um, in the 1800s. And it ironically parallels today's timely recognition of women's values and empowerment. So this is a women affirming women empowering play because it dares to allow women and men to sing about how anybody can agree to live such a foreign lifestyle and still hold on to love oh, oh okay guys, hold on i hold guess on. So let, let me get this straight this is a feminist polygamist common uh, mormon comedy musical I guess that's why I had to kind of go through the show notes for this and I'm going to I have a few things to say about that in just a second but it does say that the there's a threefold mission for writing this play um, it's first to dispel inaccuracies about what the principle of plural marriage was and how it was practiced so they want to let people know what it really was about second it's to show that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints ended this practice over a hundred years ago hmm? <laughs> and third, um, to honor our forebears who found the faith and courage to follow something they felt God was asking them to do. So that's the mission. So back to the empowerment. So to me, <laughs> polygamy is another one of my hot buttons. Mountain meadows and polygamy, that's me. Um, I feel that uh, perhaps um, a grown adult woman who chose to enter into polygamy um, of her own volition um, Perhaps that would be, you know, she chooses to live a different lifestyle than others, and she's making that choice on her own. However, people that were raised in it, people like my ancestors um, that did not really have a choice, I find absolutely nothing about empowerment in polygamy. And I'll even share a personal story. This, this again, is my grandma's grandma, and she was 16 years old. Um, she had been raised in polygamy here in Utah, and she became the friend of a Gentile boy at school. They were just friends in the village. They were going to school together, and they struck up a friendship. Well, her parents, uh, my great-great-greats, they rushed her to the bishop and said, what can we do? She's befriended a Gentile boy. The bishop said, why, she needs to marry me. She needs to become my fifth wife. And that's what happened. My 16-year-old great-grandma married the 57-year-old bishop. So if that's empowerment, um, if that's somebody that's able to make their own choice, um, I don't think that is. So to me, and in my family, that's an inspiring story. To me, that is a nightmare and a horror, you know. So that's some of the realities of, of polygamy. And I'm sorry, I'm getting all serious. But, but so I'm curious to see this play. Um, the tickets are $50 each. If anybody would like to go, you can go to their website, The Principal Wife. Um, we're well, actually, I have a... Yeah, $50 is a lot less than 250 a plate. So it's, it is a little bit more affordable. Oh, let's not go there. <laughs> You're right. But I am very curious because I know that the, the topic of polygamy um, has been treated before. I have a friend named Rob Lauer who is a post-Mormon. He's a playwright. And he, um, for probably the last 20 or 30 years, has put out different plays about just 
the realities of living polygamy in the early 1900s. So we're going to have him on Mormonish coming up pretty soon here just to talk about, is it difficult to write about polygamy? What kind of sensibilities? What do you have to take into consideration? Um, the, the humor part of this, I am curious to see how to portray that because what's humorous in one person's eyes could be personal tragedy in another. So, so I don't know. I'll have to yeah. see it and maybe yeah, report back. I, I mean, it's going to be, that's a stretch to make polygamy anything humorous, especially to the women. This doesn't exactly strike me as a laugh a minute production. No, I don't think so. I mean, I was named after um, a second wife of my polygamist ancestor, and the first wife was not happy with the scenario, and so my namesake had to sleep in the wagon in the barn. She was not even allowed to sleep in the house. So I guess that could be comedy gold if you treated it in a certain way, but you got to look at sort of the, you know, the underlying um, human situation that's going on, and to me it's more of a tragedy. Yeah, if you look in the show notes on this, the um, the byline or the or the the line says the story everyone wants to tell but doesn't, and I and I think about that and I think the story everyone wants to tell, well, everyone except for the church, the church certainly does not want to talk about polygamy in any way, shape, or form. Right. So I mean, far from being a laugh a minute, this um, I don't know. Well, the the jury's out. I haven't seen it, so we'll just have to wait and see what happens. It's yeah. certainly an adventurous proposition, so we'll just have to wait and see what happens on that. Exactly. And if you have if you have any thoughts on that, we uh, Mormon News Roundup. We're on Instagram. Let us know your thoughts on this particular musical. We'd be very grateful for that. We're at uh, Mormon News Roundup on Instagram. Now, our next article here uh, was released on the Salt Lake Tribune here, and you found this article for us here, Rebecca. Forensic evidence oh, yeah. sheds new light. On LDS leader John Taylor's, quote, miracle, end quote, at Carthage. So new research is suggesting that, yes, a bullet likely struck his pocket watch, possibly saving his life. So this is a legendary story that was, um, you know, it was really one of the Mormon miracles. But the Mormon History Association, which just took place about two weeks ago in Rochester, New York, well, they pre presented new evidence. And uh, what did we find about this, uh, uh, the pocket, the legendary story of the pocket watch, which the church still has and is in the church uh, history museum, I believe, at Temple Square? Yeah, this is a very interesting story to me. I was actually just on Temple Square a couple of weeks ago and saw the watch. So growing up, we all heard that, right? He was in the window, a blast from a shotgun, a bullet, pushed him back through the window into the room, and he later realized he was still alive and that his watch stopped the bullet. I mean, this is what is this what you heard in Sunday School and Primary? Absolutely. This, the, the, this the, is the, absolutely what I heard. Yeah. Yep, family home evening, lesson manuals, it was everywhere. So then later, I'm in college, and I'm starting to hear in more scholarly circles, oh, that may not necessarily be the case. We're not sure what happened. And then time goes on a little more and, we're, and we hear, no, that is not what happened. There was not a bullet. And <laughs> so I was, I believe that everyone had finally decided there was not a bullet um, that was stopped by this watch. But I was at the Church History Museum just three weeks ago and the watch is there and it clearly says stop by a bullet so i found a lot of things in the church history museum seem to be in a little bit of a time warp as far as what scholarship had kind of moved on past that so that's why i was really interested in this article now i will also say that i have delved into the watch um conspiracy or question um there's a movie um What's it called? Oh, Who Killed Joseph Smith? Part two, right. Justin Griffith, Griffin, yeah. right? Documentary, so two-part documentary. A document, yes, a two-part documentary, right. So whatever anyone thinks of that movie, whatever. Um, I went to the premiere. <laughs> but uh, he did extensive research, literally shooting <laughs> pocket watches like crazy, right? Different calibers of rifles, rifles from the era, different kinds of pocket watches. And every single time, 
like obliterated, like completely destroyed. So I kind of had that in mind while I was reading through this article. Apparently they had three kinds of researchers. They had two forensics and one just historical that kind of, you know, would, would delve into the history about what had happened. Um, and, and it seems like the, even though the title of the article makes it sound like there was a conclusion reached, by the time you get to the end, it basically said a few of them thought perhaps it could have been a fragment of a bullet entering at an angle, but they really couldn't confirm if that had saved a life or not because that might have not been a, a life-threatening situation with that fragment of a bullet from an angle. And of course, certainly not enough. The narrative, the very dramatic narrative, is that he was blown back, basically rescued from falling out the window by a shotgun blast. That definitely didn't happen. I think their conclusion was that. But other researchers on the team felt that no, when he fell forward toward the window, the watch was crushed. The other thing I learned from the article is that possibly the watch was facing backwards in his pocket, which would have had some impact on, no pun intended, on how they were able to look at it forensically. But the title seems very, very confident. But by the time you get to the end, it said, the last line, what role, if any, the watch played in Taylor's survival remains unclear. Um, Godfrey, one of the researchers, acknowledges what is clear, though, is that while Taylor suffered non-lethal injuries from the attack, none of the five bullets hit one of Taylor's major organs. That's the final sentence. So unclear. The title says it's pretty clear. The, the last line says it's not clear. I don't know. What do you think? You read the article. Yeah, you know, it's just one of the le legendary stories. And it, it, for, for me, this article did bring up the possibility of, of him being struck by something and then just falling forward mm -hmm. um, and, and then crushing yeah. the, the watch is mm -hmm. more of a crushed manner, right. which you would expect from, you know, as you said, from the documentary of Who Killed Joseph Smith, even mm -hmm. at long range, these rifles are strong enough to be able to obliterate a, a pocket watch, even in a glancing blow. So for me, the article kind of cemented the fact that I think that it was either a small ricochet. So when a bullet fragment, uh, either from a musket, you know, when muskets impact something there, it's not like a traditional bullet that's very small and has very little ricochet. A musket fire fires a ball, you know, uh, fires a, right. a compact uh, area of balls of, of shrapnel. Maybe a tiny piece of shrapnel hit it. Maybe he fell forward and crushed it against it. It wasn't the miraculous story that I was raised with, basically, is from the fundamental takeaway for me, is that this is just another legendary Mormon story that when forensics examines it, that the more miraculous elements, um, it's strange, credi uh, strange credulity. Um, uh, it's strange credulity. Now, uh, for, for those of you out there, you know, we drop all of our episodes onto YouTube. If you can leave us a like, give us a thumbs up, uh, leave us a comment. What do you think is the, um, what do you think happened with this pocket watch? What, was it a miraculous event? Was it something that was mundane? Will we never know the answer? Leave us a comment in the YouTube section and we'd be very grateful for that. Now, our, our next article here, and this is a quick one, and the, since you were also in downtown uh, Salt Lake City, um, you know, the Family Search uh, Library has uh, uh, unveiled a new feature here, and this is in the Family Memories Preservation Center. And uh, what's going on with that uh, uh, memory lane here uh, with the Family Search Library on Temple Square? Yeah, I just wanted to throw this in there um, because this is a very positive service that the church offers at their family history centers. And I believe this is this. I know that they do this out of the family history center in the Thanksgiving Point Lehigh area where I'm close to. And I think they do it in a lot of the larger ones. But you can take your box of photo albums and slides and pictures and they will literally help you digitize everything. You can make an appointment to work with somebody and you can do it yourself. You can schedule time or you can make an appointment for 
for them to help you do it. But I just think that's a really cool service. It's completely free and you can just take everything in there and they are very motivated to help you organize and preserve everything because we all have that box right in our closet don't we yeah. i'm guessing you have one too where it's like oh my gosh one of these days i've got to do this they will help you they have service missionaries there in the family history centers so if you're interested in doing this i would call a family history center that's closest to you where you are see if they have that service or see if you know it has to be at one of the larger ones but i just thought you know what this is very cool when they do something amazing for people i'm going to call that out too and this is Kudos to you, uh, LDS Church. This is an amazing service for people. Yeah, I mean, the Family Search Library on Temple Square, it's now helping pres uh, people preserve not just old photos, but also audio and other mm -hmm. uh, other artifacts for free. And it's uh, it's part of the Family Memories Preservation Center is located inside of the library, and it's been uh, nicknamed Memory Lane, like going down Memory Lane. It's on the second floor here. And uh, a small joke uh, for to wrap this particular article up, Rebecca, is the fact that I think Joseph Fielding Smith He's rolling in his grave over this uh, uh, ability to archive <laughs> church information. I think so, too. The Scotch yeah. tape is out the window, right? Everything's transparent. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> he was very grateful that this wasn't around during his time frame, I think, right? Safe yes, to say? I think so. <laughs> so definitely safe to say. Now, uh, a couple of other quick articles here. Uh, um, we're getting through all of the news here. The uh, uh, Salt Lake Tribune has, has released uh, the uh, final volume of the uh, Joseph Smith Papers project here. Uh, well, uh, it's just an article. It's in the church news as well here. But the final volume, this is the 27th Joseph Smith Papers print book, which is documenting the last six weeks of Joseph Smith's life. And uh, he says, I am very much resigned to my lot. He wrote as he was slain to Carthage. So the picture here, this is a church historian, Kyle S. McKay, who is a kind of a legendary. Uh, he, he's only been the church historian for a year, but he's already made a number of very legendary and significant um, uh, significant talks. But here are all of those Joseph Smith Papers books, which are quite expensive. Each one of those is like, what, yeah. $50 or more? Yes. Yes, they're they're not for the faint of heart if you want to get the entire collection. That's absolutely true. Yeah, so, I mean, this is 22 years of documenting uh, films, writing, editing, and uh, this is a 27-volume uh, library, and basically it's been completed and wrapped up. There's just so many important takeaways that um, that we've got from the Joseph Smith Papers Project that we haven't gotten any other way. It is a major step forward for the church as far as transparency is concerned. But, um, you know, I'm going to honestly miss some of the revelations that uh, we get from this particular project um, because we, we've just gained a lot of information about Joseph Smith thanks to the church investing in the historian's department. Uh, you know, dozens or maybe even hundreds of historians, uh, trained historians uh, working on these archival uh, documents on these original sources. It's just been very, very valuable. Uh, any, any thoughts on this one, Rebecca? Yeah, it is an amazing project, and it's been going on for 22 years. I don't know if people realize that. It's been a decades-long project to transcribe and study and put th these out. I own one volume. Uh, like was mentioned, they're very expensive. <laughs> so I have one. And a lot of the funding, I believe, came from um, Larry or Gail and is it Larry Miller? Yeah, I believe that their foundation has helped. Yeah. But it's invaluable <laughs> to scholars going forward. And it, it seems like almost every month, there's something that somebody will pull out and say, did anybody realize this? I mean, just, just from this final volume, I've read some of the preliminary things that they've looked at. And one thing I thought was really different and interesting, like you said, Joseph is writing letters from Carthage. And in one of his letters, to, he's writing, of course, to Emma back and forth, you know, quite feverishly. And he mentions, um, are you still planning to take the children and, and go somewhere else? 
So no one was aware of that, that there were some plans that Emma would leave with the children, you know. And he fully expected, it seemed in the letters, that he would be exonerated, found innocent, and move forward. Yet he was also still writing, are you still planning on leaving Emma? So I'd like to know more about that. That was just kind of in the article where they, they talked about that was some some information that we didn't really have. So And that's the whole point of these papers. People can go through these. They're presented in a very clear way. It's the actual handwriting you can see see the words that he wrote. I mean, scholars are going to be studying this for centuries, I think. It's an yeah, absolutely I'm, comprehensive work. And really, unlike the church's uh, correlated curriculum, and unlike the Saints volume and some of the other podcasts and general conference talks, the Joseph Smith Papers Project really is about as close to quote unquote true history as you can get. Mm -hmm. There doesn't seem to be much of a filter. It seems like they yep. uh, printed the things that were flattering and the things that were unflattering. And because we have original source documents, this is just a major step forward from the Harold B. Lee correlated curriculum and the um, whitewash narrative that we've had in times past. I'm certainly going to miss it. And I hope that the church will continue to do more Joseph Smith Papers project, you know, because this is really only taking up from, you know, I don't know, from 1820-ish to 1844. Let's continue right. the process through all the way up until modern church history so that we, everyone, will have access to all of the history of the church, because this is our collective history. And we want it straight from the source, from original documents and not sanitized, not whitewashed. Um, any last thoughts on this one? Yeah, I would love to see them now tackle other things. We know there are other journals in the archives, Hiram's journals. There are journals that William would Clayton. absolutely, William Clayton journals that would blow our minds and blow the scholarship wide open. I would love to see those come out into the light of day and let's just look at it and deal with whatever it is and move forward with full transparency. I would love to see that. We really need William Clayton's journals. Those are a huge part. The church has had those for a long time. <laughs> yeah. the, um, the William Law Collection, the Hiram Smith Diaries. And, and what else do we not know that, that we don't? Those are just the things that we know that the church has that they haven't right. released. There could be hundreds or even thousands of other things that we don't even know that the church has that they're holding back. So, yes, I, I saw a TikTok um, that talked about, hey, the church is so transparent. Look, they're releasing all of this. This is a tiny fraction of the things that the church needs to release. It's a wonderful step forward. I applaud the church, but much more needs to be done on this in this respect. We've got a couple last articles here to take you through, and uh, you found this one as well here, and th this new research, uh, and this is not just from this week, that we're not rehashing old history here. New research finds that drag shows in the 1920s in rural Utah were common and extolled as good, clean fun. A queer historian said searching for shows known as follies turned up many events, even in Iron County and in many other places around. It was considered good fun and it was no big deal. And what we covered in, uh, uh, I believe it was last week or the week before, is a BYU-Idaho professor who has come out very, very strongly against um, drag shows. Um, and a lot of other people have come out strongly against drag shows. And it's just interesting to see the transition or the contrast that we have with early church history in the 1920s, Brigham Young's son and others, where drag shows were considered no big deal. Somehow now um, that's been turned on its head. And a lot of uh, Desnat, a lot of very right wing uh, uh, people, even BYU professors to say that drag shows are, are groomers, that drag shows are robbing our children of their innocence and that somehow drag shows are inherently evil. This a particular article here, here says that, um, that that there's no ill effects from having drag shows and that it's no big deal. What did you find when you were reading this, Rebecca? 
Yeah, I thought that was fascinating because I've also been following all the controversy around anytime somebody, you know, in drag tries to read to somebody or put on a performance. And I know they've been doing research into, you know, more of the metropolitan areas of Utah where, you know, some of these performances would go on. But now they're finding that, you know, grassroots, rural Utah, um, these shows were going on in the 20s. And it was just good community fun. It was always a fundraiser. Um, they, I mean, all up and down everywhere, even that I found in Lehigh, there were some, and, and they're saying that probably during, there was a one year period, um, in the twenties, I think it was 28 to 29, over 700 men yeah, <laughs> in these exactly. rural towns in Utah, mm-hmm. you know, and, and basically, as I understand it, there was sort of like a, somebody would come in from out of state and say, Hey, we'll help you put on this fundraiser. We'll help you put on this show, you know, kind of like taking it town to town sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. The men would sign up to participate. It was a fun community event to raise money for a good cause and different causes, I think, throughout whatever your town needed. But it was certainly not seen the way it's seen with such suspicion and fear and distrust and picketing like it is now. It was just a good, wholesome community event that everybody had fun and participated in. So times change. <laughs> yeah, and they seem to have been changed for the for the worse. They, they documented that they were drag shows in Cedar City, Lehigh, mm-hmm. St. George, Beaver, Manti, Ephraim, Salina, Eureka, Mount Pleasant, Delta, Richfield, Price, Nephi, Payson, Spanish Fork, Springville, Pleasant Grove, Bountiful, Twilla, Vernal, and Monroe. Yeah. In other words, it was absolutely epidemic in, in Utah and all of these in the 1920s. You can't do anything in the 1920s in Utah without having church sanction. So, I mean, the church, the church leaders, the church bishop, the stake presidents, this was all perfectly sanctioned. What 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 has changed? Why were those perfectly acceptable in 1920? But now that is robbing our children of their innocence or somehow this is for groomers or somehow there's there's something wrong with it today. I don't understand the difference in between the two. Uh, let us know your thoughts. We, we are on um, we're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify. Uh, if you can leave us a, a comment in in the below in the reviews, let us know what your thoughts are on drag shows. Are they um, are they perfectly acceptable? Should we go back to the way that was in 1920, or should we do something different? We want to know your opinion. We'd be very grateful for that. This yeah. one, I would encourage anyone to go digitize your photos, look through them for your grandpas and great grandpas in the 20s, because 700 men in Utah, I'm guessing maybe one of your ancestors was in this drag show. <laughs> Don't uh, you think? I mean, probably some of the protesters today, if they were to look back in their family history, they probably have relatives who participated in this good, clean family fun decades ago. I wouldn't be surprised at all. Now, we have uh, two last articles to get through here, including the big bombshell, the Washington, uh, the, the Wall Street Journal article on church on, on the church's real estate. But before we get to that, Let's bring this one up. This one really caught my eye this week. And this is from the Church News here, just released a couple of days ago. Trent Toon, 24th of June, 2023. What Elder Rundlin learned from a stethoscope about seeking and relying on the Holy Ghost. So this was released also as part of the new Preach My Gospel manual, which has just been updated in the last couple of weeks here. Preach My Gospel 2.0. And this is in Chapter 4. This particular uh, anecdote or this particular story is now part of that curriculum. So it says that seeking the Holy Ghost takes spiritual work and followed by consistent and diligent practice, you will unlock 
heavenly guidance. Now, what really struck me in this particular story here is how uh, Elder Runlin here, he had, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a doctor. He had a stethoscope, you know, the kind of thing that you use to, you know, check for people's, you know, lungs and heart rate and things like that. Well, what happened is um, it was his trusty companion and he placed it in storage. Uh, actually, uh, he placed it in storage when he was called as a general authority. And years later, uh, what happened? This is a very interesting quote here with uh, what happened with this particular stethoscope. Rebecca, what happened with it? Yeah, this article really bothers me. <laughs> I have to say, I know they were trying to create uh, this nice metaphor about a stethoscope and its use and keeping it close and the Holy Ghost. But I'm sorry. So, And I, of course, can't see close enough to absolutely read it. But what happened, I'll give the background, and then you can read what he actually okay. said. So the stethoscope has been put away. He's no longer practicing. His wonderful wife wants to give him a present. And she thinks, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take that stethoscope, and I'm going to go have it framed. I'm going to make a plaque. Because this represents his decades and his life as a doctor. And so we can display this. You'll see this in various industries, right? My parents are in an assisted living facility and there's a gentleman next door to their apartment who has dental tools in a little plaque, you know, from the era. He was a dentist from decades and years ago. It means something to him. It represents your life and career. And Renland, Elder Renlund's wonderful light, wife had this encased in a plaque, in a, in a case, um, with his stethoscope and a little plaque to represent uh, his career. And she lovingly presented this to her husband, which she, I'm sure, thought would be a wonderful moment, a well-thought-out gift, a meaningful gift. I'm sure that she thought she'd get a hug and a kiss, but she didn't. Yeah, let me let me read uh, what he said. This is uh, this is what said years later. Elder Runland was astonished to learn his wife had placed his beloved stethoscope in a framed glass case for his birthday. He tried to smile and express gratitude for her thoughtfulness, but all that came out of his mouth was, "What good is this? What does this do hanging on the wall?" And, you know, it's one thing, look, anyone can, anyone can misspeak to a spouse. You know, we, we've all done it. Anyone can, can misspeak. Anyone can be insensitive. What I find very remarkable about this particular article is that he never goes back and apologizes. He never says, you know what, I, I, I apologize. I know you were trying to do the right thing. It, it, that's just taken for granted as a, it's a very dismissive comment. And it's never dealt with the rest of the article. Like the article never acknowledges that that, that interaction was poor. And I find that to be very strange. And he doesn't like it's one thing to say, you know, something came out and then he could apologize and say, you know what, um, uh, Sister Emlyn, I apologize. I, I was I was insensitive. I'm sorry. I didn't take your feelings into consideration. And I was rash. But instead, it just feels like this is apparently how Elder Rumlin normally interacts with his wife is very dismissive. Uh, she's trying to do something nice for him. He doesn't care. He's very rude and insensitive. Then he never makes an acknowledgement later and says that he's sorry or anything like that. And the article doesn't either. It's just I have a big problem with this particular article. I have a huge problem with this being put in front of young missionaries. If this is in Preach My Gospel, is that what you're, where you said it is? I didn't know that. Yeah, according to this, this is at the top of the article here. It says that uh, this is in, uh, let, let me show you this. It says at the top of the article that this is from Preach My Gospel oh, chapter is. 4. Okay. Seeking the Holy Ghost takes spiritual okay. work. So 
This is yeah, a- I didn't pick up on that. I, I have a, okay, now I have to get on a soapbox. I have a huge problem with that as an example of how a husband and, and wife should interact. I mean, from the wife's point of view, I can just, she was crushed. I'm telling you, when you take time to give your husband something that you think, you know, that they will be meaningful, that is a crushing blow right there. And, you know, I've gotten gifts from my husband where I'm like, oh, that was interesting. But I'm never going to say that because he took the time to try to pick something, right? He did it. And, and that's amazing. Just the effort is amazing. This is, this is a horrible thing for him to have said. This is awful. The rest of the article goes on to talk about how, you know, you shouldn't put the gift of the spirit away. You need to keep it close. Let me remind you, where did the stethoscope come from? Where did she rescue it from? Storage. It was freaking in. I'm sorry. Now I'm really ranting. But it was in storage. And she rescued it so that it could be brought out on display for her husband and others to enjoy and remember his career. This is a horrible article. This should be taken out of Preach My Gospel right away. This is not an example of how to be loving spouses to each other. Listen, this is the next part here also. So months later, after hanging his stethoscope on the wall, his wife's sister, Ruth Renlin, developed a bre- uh, tragically developed a breathing problem. Her doctor instructed Elder Renlin to get his stethoscope and listen to her lungs. Now, this is the important takeaway. Now he can put two and two together. He remembers that he was insensitive about it. Now he's bringing it back out, and now is his chance to make amends. But this is what happens. He said, embarrassed that he didn't have another one handy, he retrieved it from the, fr- the frame stethoscope, only to find that holes had been drilled into it, rendering it useless. So she tried to do something nice for him. Yeah. He, uh, he chastised her. He brought it out. It was useless, and, and that's it. That, that's the message is that you messed up my stethoscope, because you meddled in my personal affairs. And, I, and now I, she might die. Now she might die because she can't have her lungs listened to. It's always that. She should have known. And they try to make a bizarre analogy back to the Holy Ghost yeah. or something. I, the, the rest of the article, I, yeah. I don't see how this is a faith-promoting story. Nope. I don't see what I'm nope. supposed to take away from this nope. other than um, that this is not the way that you treat other people. I guess this is what not to do. So really, uh, I don't know. This isn't the type of story that I, I yeah. enjoy reading, and I don't think it's anything that's going to build anyone's faith. Now, our our last uh, our last article here is uh, this is the the featured news article for the week here, Rebecca. And before we get to that, you know, this is in your neck of the woods here. This is uh, the the Wall Street Journal article oh, is based on yes. temples, and this is I believe this is the Taylorsville Temple here. And yeah, and somebody put put a caption on this that because you have the billboard right next to the ta- the new Taylorsville Temple, this says deep pet urine removal. Uh, just look us up on <laughs> urineexterminator.com, uh, 1-801-carpets. And so you literally have urine removal as a big billboard right next to the temple because you built it right off the freeway. Oh, my gosh. No, I guarantee that now that this meme is out there, um, the church will definitely, I'm sorry, I'm crying. I love is go hard. Uh, the church will definitely now try to have control of the billboards that are around the temples. But, no, this is something that's interesting in Utah, and I see all these right off the freeway literally like a maverick there's one in orem it's technically provo but it's in orem and they're taylorsville you're driving down the freeway and you're like oh look at that it's not a special location like they used to be you know set high on a mountaintop these are literally off the freeway and that means you're going to get signage problems you're going to get people going what's that you know it does not have the impact that they want it to have and this billboard is just one example of it yeah, and you run the uh, Trexville uh, meme too here, and here we have uh, Bones and um, an unnamed Ensign, I, I'm assuming an unnamed Ensign here. We Excellent. really love it if you could stand outside our temple wedding, it would just mean so much to us. 
<laughs> I don't watch enough of the old Star Trek to know if she has a name. Sorry, that's kind of dismissive. But. No, you know, Bones, he was a ladies' man. But yeah, that's one of my favorite things to do. I have a little Facebook page and Instagram page called Trexmo. It's Star Trek memes for post or nuanced Mormons. And we just kind of do things like that, lighthearted fun about, you know, situations. It's kind of cute. But yeah, I'd love it if you could stand outside my temple wedding. And yeah. under that billboard, me. however, if we can roll that back, I have two dogs. I actually need that phone number. So if I get the urine phone number after the show, I'll get that for you. Well, you do, you get the urine phone number after you do your endowment. It's very handy. Oh. Right outside, ready to go. You know, that's what you need. Fair, fair. Yeah. Now, our, our featured article, this is a really, really important article. And this is uh, from the Wall Street Journal. And this just hit uh, just this last um uh, just this last week at Taylorsville, Utah Temple is one of 133 new such buildings announced in the past five years. This was released on June 29th, 2023. And it, the title of the article is Inside the Mormon Church's Globe Spanning Real Estate Empire. From Guam to Cape Verde, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is using the financial cushion of its $100 billion in investment portfolio to go on a temple building spree. This has really taken the Internet by a storm. And this is a very important article for a number of reasons. First of all, and I'm going to give you a slight uh, quiz here to see how I, I hate to put you on the hot seat, but I'm going to give you a small quiz here, Rebecca. This is only the second time this year that, uh, that the senior church leaders have taken any questions from either journalists or the media, either in print or on TV. So I'm going to uh, this is my pop quiz to you. Do you know what the only other time is this year? This is a toughie. Uh oh, well, I'm guessing it would have been 60 minutes because that was when another member of the presiding bishopric, which were also heavily quoted here. Right. So, yeah, we had some gems of quotes from that interview for sure. And there are more gems of quotes from this article. Every time they get in front of the camera, it's, it's very interesting what they say. <laughs> right. This is the second time based off of the 60 minutes piece with Bishop Waddell. Now, I'm not counting Elder Suarez going on live TV in Chile because that was an incredibly softball interview with prepared questions. Right. This Wall Street Journal article, I it was no holds barred. They were asking the most difficult questions like they normally do. They're not going to conduct an interview where things are off off limits. And that's why we have come to appreciate their level of journalistic integrity here. Now, this article is broken into basically it's broken into two parts. There's a discussion of the real estate uh, and temple building empire. And then it follows it up with the second half is a discussion about the church's recent run-ins with the SEC. So this is definitely a must-read article here. And I want to share a couple of uh, uh, a couple of quotations from it for, for you and then get your reaction. Okay, the first, uh, uh, the first quote that I want to get your reaction to is this. In Pocatello, Idaho, a city of 56,000 people in rural southeastern corner of the state, a recently constructed temple stands at 71,000 square feet. Its polished limestone flooring was quarried in Bethlehem, Israel, the biblical birthplace of Jesus, and wood for its doors was imported from the Congo River region. A statue, a gleaming statue of the angel Moroni, an important figure in the religion, tops a central spire 190 feet off the ground. The temple costs $69 million to construct, according to estimates by the church's contractors on city building permits. What's your reaction to this first quote here, Rebecca? Again, I feel like um, if if this is information the church is putting out, this uh, sort of idea that from the Congo and from Bethlehem, who are they trying to impress, really? 
I think even faithful members now at this point hearing things like that are just sort of shaking their heads and going, do we really have to spend this much money on this? Is this really necessary? Is this really the mission of Christ? Is this really the mission of temples? And I personally know family members and people that have been, you know, very disturbed by this display of wealth. I have a, a a relative who came home from his mission, toured the conference center. Somebody proudly pointed out, see that table, $18,000, thinking it would impress my cousin. No, my cousin had just been on a mission to a poverty-stricken area of the world, and he was horrified. And it sort of <laughs> precipitated his gradual step away because just this idea that there's something something positive in this ostentatious, and we'll come to words like that later in the article, um, uh, show of wealth. I just don't know what the place is. I do not know what that place is, and I don't know why they continue to say things like that. Well, I, in Bethlehem. I think it, that we're, I, as we're going to go through the article, I think we're going to get some of the rationale behind why we are seeing such a high level of spending, because the, the commercial real estate average to build a building in the United States is $500 per square foot. That's a normal mm -hmm. average. That would place this building at, a, you know, it's 70,000 square feet. That would make it a $35 million building if you have the average. So what this has also tells to me, first of all, is that the widow's might has been completely vindicated. The widow's might yep. has estimated that church temple construction is not just the commercial real estate average of $500 per square foot, but is more like $1,100 per square foot. And remember, this is a 56000 uh, fifty-six. Uh, 70,000 square foot building and it's $69 million. So that is almost exactly what the widows might um, predicted for these costs of these temples. And also uh, another thing to note is, you know, the church temple construction in Utah is probably less expensive than in other places because the church is being able to use their own contractors and their own people to do it. So the fact that this is just a little less than the $1,100 per square foot, I still think that the widow's might report is completely vindicated in this particular report. Just one last note here before we leave this quote. Remember when the saints came to Utah in 1847? Did they construct a fabulous, uh, expensive edifice? Well, sort of. They first constructed the Nauvoo House, which was a cheap building. It was just a normal looking building that they used to perform endowments until St. George was open about 35 years later. And endowments were given in Nauvoo, not even always in the temple. It could have just been in a regular place. And in, in fact, um, th there's just no reason, even according to church history, to have to spend this level of wealth to perform church rituals. It, it's just unprecedented. Any last thoughts on this first quote? Um, I would say that you're correct about the widow's might. Now, in this article, I'm, I'm on a panel with John DeLynn on talking about the SEC and finances and in contact with some representatives of widow's might. So I put this article over on this financial four-way text. And I said, look, everybody, and we're all writing back and forth. And everybody, again, was just kudos to the widow's might. I mean, what they have to go through to get their financial information, to do the calculations, to try to put it all together and come up with an estimate, you know, and, and they're not trying to be over the top. They're trying to be very realistic. Like you said, they were so spot on. And the Widow's Might is a panel of, you know, faithful, post, progressive, all kinds of different people connected to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And they're really trying to get the information out there. And I think we see here that their integrity of trying to be absolutely correct, even though nothing is transparent, they did it. They arrived at that number right there. So yeah. I was proud of them for that. Absolutely. Um, it's very nice to see that the, the, the reports that we have 
of the things that we can confirm, because there's a lot of things we can't confirm that the Widow's Mike report has um, has put forward. But in every aspect of the things that they have put forward, they've been pretty darn close. And we continue to yep. see the accuracy of the Widow's Mike report. Now, previously, Rebecca, you said that we don't know the reason why these extravagant temples with these Persian rugs, with with hardwoods from the Congo, from from wood that is imported from uh, from Bethlehem, from China that is literally imported from China. Why are we spending that much? This seems to be a great mystery. Well, Bishop Kaze, the presiding bishop of the church, has basically, in my opinion, answered that unanswerable question here. And he's probably the most important person and really uh, to talk about this issue. I just want to read this quote here because it is very telling. In the Wall Street Journal article, he said, Bishop Kaze, quote, we have a vision of the church that is, can I use the word grandiose? He said in an interview, and quote, because we believe the gospel has to be taken to all the world. And so we see the size of the church multiple times what it is now in the future, end quote. So Bishop Kaze and by extension, President Nelson, he wants a grandiose vision of the church. And that's not just grandiose by the number of members, but it's grandiose, really gaudiness in the level of wealth that is spent on church temples what's your yep, reaction i looked up the definition because i thought is there another way that he's using grandiose is there something else that he's trying to say that has you know a better meaning than what i think it means and i said i just have to read the definition so i'm going to read it to you grandiose impressive and imposing in appearance or style especially pretentious exactly that's it pretentious and that's what he's talking about yeah there's there's no reason to do this and i was thinking about how many how many people actually get to utilize and experience the temple we know that the number of temple recommend holding members in each stake is not what they would perhaps tell you that it is it is a tiny portion of even lds members that even get to go inside the temples who is this it's like the song war what is it good for temples what are they good for who are they good for who is really experiencing this no i think it's to show the world that's yeah. what i think the it's grandiose to show the world. Vision. yeah and literally in our scripture great and spacious building that phrase has been vilified right the great and spacious building the great and grandiose building can we say that there's absolutely no scriptural doctrinal reason for any of these temples to be this way and as i've said i have seen faithful members in my family even they are starting to take pause even they are starting to go i, I don't know optically this just is not a great look it's not so yeah. i can't explain it just i can't think explain about it unless you're out of touch <laughs> yeah just think about the contrast here rebecca but between what jesus said he said consider the lilies of the field they toil right. not, neither do they spin. They're not clad. They don't have big buildings. Remember, he said the Son of Man has not a place to lay his head. And he also said, Jesus also said, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves break through and steal. The, 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 Jesus' vision for how we should how he lived his life and how we should live our life is in diametric opposition to Bishop Cause's vision for the church as being a gaudy, grandiose, yeah. a, a extravagant um a pr pretentious um you know a pretentious building now uh, our next uh, a couple of a couple of other, other quotes here because this is a tremendously good article here bishop Kaze said keeping the church's financial information confidential is a matter of principle quote it's important for us that we maintain our privacy that's a value that's important for religion so he, he's espousing the idea of privacy as a core tenant 
of the church. It's uh, it's core. It is fundamental. It is part of the church and how it, it, how it operates. Is secrecy important for religion, Rebecca? Um, only if you have something to hide. <laughs> and I would say privacy uh, institutionally is not a value because I didn't have any privacy as a youth when I was asked extraordinarily invasive questions by my bishop. I will not go into it. Boy, I'm starting to just rant about things. But no, um, there are no boundaries in a lot of areas of the church as far as privacy. So to claim that they don't have to be transparent and they don't have to reveal things, I guess maybe for the good of the members, I'm not sure. It's a ridiculous argument. These are weasel words, um, confidential, privacy, secrecy, weasel words, because uh, there is information that they don't want to get out because it would not look good optically. So. Yeah, as Sam Harris might say, for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, secrecy is a feature, not a bug. Now, it's, it. a core, it's a core value yes. that the church wants to be secret. Now, uh, two last quotes here from this article, um, and we're going to link to all of this in our show notes. Um, we're linked in this in Apple Podcasts, if you're listening to this in Apple Podcast form, and we're also on YouTube here. Now, um, the second half of the article, as we mentioned earlier, transitions into the church's recent, shall we say, difficulties with the Security and Exchange <laughs> Commission. And Kaze, he declined, according to the article, to discuss the details of the SEC settlement. But he did say this, quote, we recognize mistakes and we regret mistakes, end quote. The church says cash from Enzyme Peak helped fund its religious, charitable, and educational activities. And Kaze said, quote, there is no other purpose. Nobody is getting rich, end quote. Everything goes to these. So how do you feel about this particular statement here, Rebecca? We regret mistakes made. Uh, we, we recognize mistakes and we regret mistakes made. How do you feel about yeah, that these, statement? These are not mistakes at all. And I wish I had a Trexmo. I do have a Trexmo meme about this, but I, we don't have it here today. But creating the clone companies, purposely misfiling for decades, that is not a mistake. That is a conscious choice. That is a lifestyle. <laughs> That's not a mistake. You can't use that word to describe this deceit. It's a choice to cover something, to do something, something that you gain from it. It's a choice. It is not a mistake. Absolutely. And, and, you know, he says we recognize mistakes. Well, how did he do that? OK, when you recognize a, a mistake, you say this is a mistake that we make. You enumerate the mistake. Bishop right. Kaze, what mistake are you referring to? You said multiple mistakes. What yeah. are the multiple mistakes? If you recognize them, then tell us what they are. Are you just going to as the core value of being secret? Is that, uh, you know, I just don't understand how we're how we're recognizing the mistakes since they haven't been enumerated. And, uh, no, you know, and the, think about this. Their internal auditors pointed out these mistakes decades ago and said, look, this is not going to fly. Was the mistake rectified? No. Clone companies. And I use that word because that's their word. Shell companies. Uh, there's no such thing as a clone company. That was made up to kind of take you off the scent that it's a shell company. Um, anyway, those were created to try to cover, not rectify mistakes, to continue this pattern and to cover up what they were doing. So no, no mistakes. A choice. Yeah, absolutely. Now, there's one last uh, section of this, which I think is perhaps the most telling section here. Uh, unfortunately, we could do a whole episode on this, but we don't have time. <laughs> we could. But this is this is probably the second most important article of the year behind the 60 Minutes article because we're getting yeah. church senior church leaders who are being yeah. asked the most difficult questions, and that's what I want them to do, and I want to learn what it is that they're telling us. So here is the last section here that I want to share with you, and um, here it is. It's after the church did not file the correct 990-T form. So 990 forms 
is when you are disclosing to the government the total amount of assets that you have under management. The church consistently for years reported either $1 million for its total assets, which is an abject lie. There is absolutely is a total misrepresentation of the church's assets. It's not a mistake. Or they would write in over $1 million, which even to be very charitable, when you're managing billions and tens of billions of dollars, to write over $1 million is highly disingenuous. So um, the Wall Street Journal uh, talked about this, and the church leaders weighed into this. This is an important aspect here. Church officials said that they believe that as a religious organization, the church doesn't have to disclose its assets. Todd Budge, another member of the presiding bishopric, said anyone familiar with the church would know its assets exceeded $1 million. Quote, it wasn't an accurate answer. It wasn't meant to be an accurate answer, said Budge, a 63-year-old former banking and private equity executive. It was simply meant to communicate that we do not feel that we're obligated to fill in that box. Kate, Rebecca, what's your reaction? I know. I was thinking it's so funny that they grossly underreport financial information and they grossly overreport membership information. <laughs> so, oh. But no, no, that quote, everybody True. was talking about that. And I told you I'm on this financial four way um, with, you know, some people associated with the widow's might. So we were talking about that quote. And so to be fair, I will read you um, kind of a takeaway from it. Um, one of them said this quote, it's not as bad of a quote as it seems, but it's pretty bad. Um, I can understand why the church didn't feel like line C in the form 990 applies to them since it is presumably is designed to reconcile to form 990. Okay, that's a bunch of accounting talk. Anyway, but that's why they leave it blank. But that's why you just leave it blank or else you report it honestly. One of those two choices to, to seek or you ask the IRS how they would like you to report it. You do not lie. So the appropriate options would have been leave that line blank or Talk to the IRS and say, look, we have billions under management. How do you want us to report this? Or um, you actually report what you have. The idea that they actually said that to put people off the scent, um, trickery, that was a lie. Absolutely. There are other ways to handle that if you want to still maintain some kind of transparency, but be honest um, with the IRS. You know, if you don't want your members to know, but you need to report it. So anyway, they definitely were talking about that quote because it just sounds, it sounds the worst of the worst. It's a very, <laughs> we very. We don't have to. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very, very telling quote. Let, let me just give yep. you a couple of thoughts on this quote. The church feels absolutely no obligation to feel truthful, to be truthful. And in fact, has no qualms whatsoever in being openly deceitful. This particular quote acknowledges a deliberate deception, not mistakes made, deliberate deception. This wasn't we relied on legal counsel. This wasn't an accounting error. This wasn't a Curtin McConkie failing. This wasn't a rogue accountant in the back room. This isn't a simple mistake you would get from a the uh, that you might expect from a theological gerontocracy. This isn't David Nielsen not knowing his facts. This isn't the widow's might report grinding an axe. This isn't any of that. This is deliberate, conscious diabolical deception that as bishop cause said secrecy is at the core of the church this is a feature not a bug this isn't a one-off and if the church could do it again they probably would absolutely i 100 yeah. agree let me just give you a couple of other thoughts on this because this this particular quote really has me worked up it says that we do not feel obligated we do not feel obligated i just i really ruminated on that we do not feel obligated to tell the truth 
We do not feel obligated to, to follow the law. We do not feel obligated to be honest. We do not feel obligated to be moral. We, don't, we do not feel obligated to be ethical. We don't feel obligated to follow our own 12th article of faith. We don't feel obligated to avoid lying. We don't feel obligated to be transparent, not even to our own members. We don't feel obligated to be good uh, citizens in the United States or global citizens. We do not feel obligated to be our brother's keeper. The presiding bishopric of the church believes that the church doesn't have to disclose its assets, no matter what the government says, no matter what laws are passed, no matter what regulations that they break, no matter who is harmed in the process, no matter what the collateral damage is, we do not feel obligated. Okay, and I just I, I want to ask you this question here because you know I watch the Midnight Mormons and Quick Media and other people who have defended these particular type of actions. What and the basic argument is, well, what is the harm? in misrepresenting church assets on required document for years. Is that a victimless crime? Because as Bishop Kaze said, no one is getting rich. So there's no, there's, it's a victimless crime, right? No one's harmed, right? That's the argument. That is the argument, but it's not a victimless crime. And I think as these, the information about the finances come out, you see people pivoting and taking ownership of their own contributions and, and changing the, the way they contribute and saying, I did not know that. I didn't realize that when I thought I was giving to charity, I was helping, like you said, the global community, humanity, I was not. I give Jenna Reese as an example. Um, she now gives tithing to charities, not to the church. People need to be informed with consent so that they can give their contributions, give their money, you know, where it's going to do some good and, and they need to understand where it's going. And I would also say this transparency, um, they expect full honesty and transparency from the members every day. There's somebody in a bishop's interview being grilled. Be honest. Tell me everything that you're doing in a tithing settlement. Be honest. How much money did you give? Did you give enough? They absolutely expect this honesty from painful honesty <laughs> from the members and they will dig for it. They will dig deep. Are you sure you told me everything? Are you sure you're a full tithe payer? You know, I've told my story of admitting I was partial and having my job threatened at BYU because I was not a full tithe payer. They expect this from the members. They do not provide it themselves and there's no informed consent. We don't know what we're doing as members. I have no problem with somebody that understands the full financial picture of the church and still wants to give their money there. That's up to you. That's your money. But I've seen a lot of people, the light's starting to dawn and they're making other choices. And we know from the church's own words, they're worried about that, right? Will people stop paying tithing if they really understand where the money's going? Yes, <laughs> they will. <laughs> they are not wrong on that. There's a reason for that. So, but as it says in the article toward the end, all of this would go away if they would just simply be transparent. There would be plenty of members that would say, I don't care about that. That's fine. Like you say, the people that defend, I will still contribute to the church. Just be transparent. Let us know what's happening so that we can have informed consent as we practice our religion. Okay. And there's also one other harm. It's not just, as you mentioned, there's a harm to the members when you're not telling them um, the value of the, the valuation of the church and uh, how, what percentage of their t uh, donations and tithing actually goes to humanitarian purposes, which is incredibly low. There's another harm that comes from this that I just want to talk about. It's not mentioned very much. 
Why in the world is the government requiring anyone with a large portfolio of greater than $100 million to disclose the assets? What business is it of the government? If I want to have a lot of money in my bank account, that should, a lot of people are saying that should be my own personal business. I don't, you know, I, I, as a private citizen, I don't have to tell the government how much money that I have as well. I have to tell them how much income that I make, but I don't have to tell them how much is in my bank account. So what is the harm of the church misreporting and saying it was only a million when it was billions or it was over a, a million when it was tens of billions? What is the harm? I will tell you what, in my opinion, I want to see if I can encapsulate this properly. When you have major players in the U.S. stock market who control a large number of assets, we live in a pluralistic society in which we're all connected. If there is a run on the stock market, it affects all of us and our own 401ks, our own home valuations, those other things can be drastically affected. So we need to know who the big players are and understand where they're putting their money in the market because we're all interconnected. We're not living on some remote island in the South Pacific where it would truly be none of anybody's business. And because the church is a corporation sold, and because Enzyme Peak has almost $200 billion in it, the vast majority of it could be liquidated in a very short period of time, in less than a month, 75% of it yeah, could be liquidated. About three months, yep. And absolutely. in three months, all of it, basically all of it yep. could be liquidated in, yep. in that amount of time. President Nelson could ostensibly, could theoretically have a run and, and do corporate yeah. buyouts. He could do a rating of company, you know, aggressively take companies over and really move the stock market around in a significant manner with that level of assets. So we need to know who the players are in that so that we're not harming other people and so that there is transparency for the stability of the U.S. economy. This is not a victimless crime, not even for people who have never given a donation to the church. It is harming the other investment firms because they are required to disclose how much Tesla, how much GameStop, how much uh, Microsoft assets. But the church is playing all of them and saying, well, we're not disclosing. So they're having advantages in the market. This is wrong on every single level from the top to the bottom. But what did he say? We feel no obligation to anyone for anything. We are not obligated. This is the kingdom of God on earth, and we will do what we want, and you will suffer the consequences as members and as non-members. Okay, um, last thoughts on this one, Rebecca? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up because not enough people understand that, and we talk about that a lot on the SEC panel that I'm on on Mormon Stories, and you're absolutely right. Um, the church has as many assets as a small country, and it's all controlled by one person Show me anywhere else where that happens. And this person has a lighted pen that at any moment he could say, oh, I've been told we're taking it all out. Global havoc is what would happen. Exactly. This is why the government requires that you report. They do need to know yes. the people that could impact the global financial markets. They need to know who they are. And if anyone really understands this, it's frightening. One person could literally throw the global economy into complete chaos. So they do need to understand. And you are impacted whether you realize it or not. And there's a lot of nuances to this. It's more complicated than both of us are describing, but that's the general idea. And I know that there are a lot of, I would call it disturbing apologist rhetoric out there on different sites that say, we're building the kingdom of God. That's different, different rules from the government, from the SEC. We play by different rules. These are Jesus's rules. So I know there's that mindset of being above and beyond the law for this higher otherworldly purpose. That is extraordinarily dangerous when that mindset belongs to somebody <laughs> who controls as much wealth as a small country. 
I, I couldn't agree more with you. And I was looking online here to, because I, I scroll Facebook every day. And this is from uh, the Family Forever, which does a lot of pro family proclamation stuff. And, you know, it's a LDS friendly site here. And it says that wrong is wrong, even if everyone is doing it. And right is right, even if no one is doing it. So that's my advice to uh, uh, Bishop Budge here is to uh, do the right thing and follow the law. You know, uh, Rebecca, have we ruminated properly on the Great and Spacious Beehive? Woo, I think this is one of my favorite episodes. Every article was so interesting and diverse topics. And boy, we, we ranted a lot. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we drop every episode live on Sunday night, 9.30 p.m. Uh, on YouTube, Eastern Standard Time. And uh, shout out to uh, Weird Alma on Bandcamp.com for this episode's music. Rebecca, thank you so much for ruminating with me on the Great and Spacious Beehive. And remember, remember, no unhallowed hand can stop this podcast from progressing. So long. When it comes to nicknames of the church, such as LDS Church, the Mormon Church, to remove the Lord's name from the Lord's Church is a major victory for Satan. 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 Hey there, brothers and sisters. Thanks for listening to the Mormon News Roundup. And if you are enjoying this show, please consider making a donation. Patreon makes an important contribution to helping us ruminate on the great and spacious beehive here. So thanks so much to everyone for, for supporting us on Patreon.com.